Thanks to the band for leading us in worship. They're going to be leading us again later on as we take communion together. Let's just pray, shall we? Father, we bow before you this morning and we give you thanks for that great love that came down and rescued us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. The love of God expressed to us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Thank you that we can say that we know your love, that you have given us your love and that love has come down and rescued us. We praise you. We worship you this morning. We pray, Lord, now as we look at your word together that you would meet with us and speak to us and continue to meet with us and challenge us and change us, we pray. So bless us now, we pray. And we pray for the children next door as they are in their Sunday school classes, where they have a great time this morning and enjoy themselves, but also learn about you and have a great morning together. So bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's lots of TV programs that uh, are often in our house. There are two TV programs that are sometimes found to be playing uh, on the TV in our house. The first is a one called Extreme Makeover. I banned this, I hasten to add. Uh, but the first is Extreme Makeover. It was, it was once found playing in our house. My children found that this trashy channel with all these kind of these just great American TV shows. The first is Extreme Makeover, and the second is Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Can you just go back? Just keep that on. Thanks. An extreme makeover, a person who really doesn't like the way that they... Just take them back to the, the pictures, Matthew, thanks. In extreme makeover, a person who really doesn't like the way they, they look has an extreme makeover, usually involving significant plastic surgery. And as a result, they look significantly different. Here's some examples. As you can see, there's a lady who's, who had some major plastic surgery and, and a guy too, and they reconstruct their face and they do some, some significant work to them. But here's the problem. Underneath, despite that exterior makeover, underneath, they're still the same person. Nothing has really changed. They look, at, they look different, sometimes significantly different, but underneath, they are still the same. However, with Extreme Makeover Home Edition, much better program, it's a completely different story, a completely different story. They come in and they help a family who have a terrible home that's fallen to pieces. They're often uh, stuck in, in low-paid jobs and they can't afford to repair their house and it's perhaps been flooded and they usually have a large family or they've taken family members in or adopted children and they have no money and they're living in real, real problems. And some of the homes they live in are just terrible. But then along comes the TV show and they throw loads of money at it and they get the community involved and local builders and so on. And then they don't just give the house a makeover, but as the family are away at Disney and come home from Disney, they discover that their house has been completely demolished and rebuilt from the, from the ground up, and they have a whole new house. It's amazing. Here's some pictures for you. There's a before and, a, and an after. That was the house before. And then they get this whole new house, a whole new uh, makeover. The two shows are very similar, similar titles, same company, I believe. But the end results are radically, radically different. One is an exterior makeover whilst the other is a complete rebuild from the ground up. Now, I'm not trying to justify the TV shows that can be regularly found uh, shown in my living room. Actually, as I said, we only watch the home makeover edition. But the comparison between these two shows teaches us a massive theological... You didn't think that, did you think that was possible, watching trashy TV? That, but, but it's true that we see a massive theological and biblical lesson as we compare those two shows. See, people can try all they like in and of themselves to change themselves. And they can try and do exterior makeovers. They may even go to church. They may read their Bibles. They may try and do all sorts of things to try and change, and maybe to try and change to get God's favor, to be accepted by God, to go to heaven, in the hope that they'll go to heaven for eternity and so on. 
But the only change that is of real value and of lasting value is the change that God makes in a person's life. We can try and change ourselves, but that's a little bit like extreme ho- uh, makeover. It doesn't really change the person inside. It's just an exterior makeover. But the only change, and the change that we really, really need, is the change that God makes as he comes into our life, as we surrender our lives to him, and he transforms us, if you like, from the ground up. Now today we're looking at Colossians 1, 21 to 23, and I've given it the title, How Can I Be Sure I'm Going to Heaven? And that's a question I guess all of us are asking. I guess you probably wouldn't be here at church today if that wasn't important to you, if, if going to heaven wasn't of some interest to you. You want to know that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. How can we be sure about that? And it's a question that we all need to ask ourselves. Even if we've been going to church for years, maybe 50 years or so, or five years or whatever, even if we've been baptized in that, in that pool over there, or, or christened as a baby, whatever, maybe you're a church member here or a church member somewhere else, it's a question we all need to ask ourselves. Because if in reality all we've actually had is an external makeover, then we won't have changed in the way that God requires us to change to go to heaven. If all we've had is some external makeover, that isn't good enough. It doesn't fit the bill as far as God is concerned. But if unlike Extreme Makeover Home Edition, we've had a total rebuild from the ground up because God has transformed us and it is God that has changed us, then we can have that complete assurance that we have been accepted by God and that we will spend eternity in heaven with him. And that's because it's God who's changed us and it's not ourselves who's changed us. When we try and do it in and of ourselves, we might you know, look better for a little while, we might be able to fool others, but we can't fool God. And we need a total transforming change in our lives that only God can do and only God can bring. Now in today's passage, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter. He's in prison in Rome and he's writing a letter to the church in Colossae, which was a city in what is now modern-day Turkey. And this letter, the book of Colossians in the Bible that he's writing, we're studying it together as a church. And he picks up in today's passage where we left, where we left off last week. And Paul is describing who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. Who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And Paul describes what Jesus has done for those that believe in Jesus, those that believe in him and have trusted in him and have given their lives to him. But then he goes on to give a massive warning, a massive, massive warning. And the warning is basically to make sure that the people reading his letter hadn't just had an external makeover. They hadn't just kind of started going to church and reading their Bibles a little bit or thinking that they might you know, change a little bit and conform to how people in church behave and that kind of thing. They hadn't just had an external makeover, but had actually had a complete spiritual rebuild in their lives. And this is what Paul is wanting to get across. Make sure your uh, rebuild, if you like, is from the ground up. Make sure it's not just an external makeover. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're going to heaven. So let's read today's section, which is Colossians 1, verses 21 to 23. How are we doing with reading Colossians every day? Anybody still going? Anybody still, still standing? Oh, Anna's still going. Fantastic. A few others. I know there are some. I know that there are some folks who are just too embarrassed or too shy to put their hands up. Great. Fantastic. Here's a tip for you. Rather than keep reading it in the same translation, why don't you dip into a different translation that maybe puts it in a slightly fresher way or a different way that can bring it alive a little bit, read it in the message or the New Living Translation or the ESV or whatever, and just see how it's translated a little bit different. That can really help and make it come alive for us. We're going to read this morning from Colossians 1, just a few verses, 21 to 23. And Paul says this uh, as he's writing in this letter. We're just breaking into a little section of this letter. He's writing it to Christians in this church in Colossae 
in modern-day Turkey. And he says this, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In verse 21, we read how God had viewed the church at Colossae or viewed the people in the church at Colossae before they trusted in Jesus. And of course, it's how God views everybody who hasn't trusted in Jesus. Now, on your seat, there should be an outline. If you pick up your outline, there's things uh, there for you to fill in. All the verses that we're going to look at today are there for you, and there's some gaps for you to fill in, some information that you might want to write down. And I'd encourage you to to, uh, use that this morning and take it home with you. It's on the other side of the bulletin. So not only do you get to see what's happening this week, but you get to see uh, what we looked at this morning um, as we're working our way through Colossians. And in verse 21, we read how God viewed people, or God, how God views people before they become Christians. And he says in verse 21, and I've used the ESV translation here because it, it, it translates it more literally and it makes the point a little bit clearer. Paul says this, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The person who hasn't yet trusted in Jesus and hasn't yet surrendered their life to Jesus is viewed by God, according to this verse, in three negative and deeply serious ways. Firstly, they are alienated from God. In other words, God God views them as being foreign to him, as being separated from him, as being... It's like God's in one country and the person's in another country. They're alienated. There's this massive gulf between the two people, between God and those people. There's no coming and going. There's no relationship. There's no discussion. Just like two people from different countries who speak a different language who can't communicate. And, And Paul describes the person who hasn't yet trusted in Jesus and God, like that, completely alienated from each other. Secondly, he says they're enemies in their minds and they're hostile towards God. The person who won't surrender their life to Jesus is an enemy of God and is hostile towards him. And on the surface, they might not look as if they're really bothered with uh, what God says or really bothered about God or church or whatever. They might even seem as if they're quite open to God and the things of God, but when you dig deeper and when you start probing into a person's life, you'll find an unwillingness to surrender to God. And at the heart of this is a hostility to God, Paul says, and to the claims of God on a person's life. And that hostility towards God and his demands on a person's life is seen by the behavior of the person. Paul says because of the hostility of their minds, they do evil things, they do sinful things, they do wrong things. And that's a terrible position to be in, isn't it? To be alienated from God to be an enemy of God and to be hostile towards God. Who would want to be in that position? To live in a way that's not only contrary to God's commands, but is truly offensive to God and will bring about, the Bible says, eternal separation from God and eternal punishment from God. That's a horrendous position to be in. But the the wonderful thing is, it doesn't need to stay that way. We've read in the passage we've looked at the word gospel, and gospel just means good news. And this is the good news. That's the bad news, if you like. The good news is that God has dealt with our alienation from himself. God has, God has come into this world, and he's, he's dealt with that problem. He's dealt with the very thing that separates us from himself. Love came down and rescued us. God has come in the person of Jesus and has dealt with that thing, sin, that separated us from God. 
He's made it possible for us to become his friends rather than his enemies, to have our sins removed and forgiven and to receive eternal life. And when we surrender our lives to Jesus, when we confess our sinfulness to him, and when we turn away from our old way of living and and ask Jesus for forgiveness and trust in him and begin living for him, then we get a whole variety of blessings. And in verse 22, Paul lists some of them for us. Look at what he says. He said before that this is where you were, when you hadn't trusted in Jesus. Now he's talking to them and he says, but you've trusted in Jesus. Look at what you've got. He says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. We were enemies, Paul says. We were hostile to God. We were alienated from God. No way of of sorting that situation out in and of ourselves. We're powerless to do anything about it. But because God the Son came down to earth in the person of Jesus, and lived this perfect life, and then died in our place, taking the punishment for your sins, for my sins, all those wrong things we do, all those times that we foul up and screw up and mess up, all those wrong things, Jesus took all the punishment for all those things upon himself. So that we can be reconciled to God. The thing that separates us from God has been dealt with. And once we were enemies, and Paul says, if we've trusted in Jesus, now we're friends. Once we were hostile, now we're at peace and we've surrendered to his way. We've been reconciled to God through what Jesus did as he literally and physically died there on the cross in our place. So the first thing that we find in this verse, if we've trusted in Jesus, write this down, is that we have been reconciled to God. If I have trusted in Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus, then we have been reconciled to God. That is phenomenal. To have once been at war, to have once been an enemy, now to be reconciled to God. No more war, no more hostility, no more enemies. We're reconciled because the thing that made us offensive and hostile towards God, our sin, the Bible says, has been dealt with because Jesus dealt with it on the cross. He took the punishment for it. But not only has God dealt with our sin by punishing Jesus, Jesus on the cross, uh, instead of us as he died there, he took the punishment for us. But in addition to that, God has now made us holy. Because he's taken our sin off us, and when we trust in Jesus, he gives us the holiness of Jesus. And so now God looks at us and thinks of us as being as holy and as perfect as Jesus. That is amazing, isn't it? Isn't that phenomenal? I don't know about you. I don't feel very holy. I'm not very holy. Anybody who knows me well enough will know that. But God looks at me, and not because of anything I've done, but because I've trusted in Jesus and what Jesus has done, then God sees me as being holy. That's amazing. So write that down. I've been made holy. As God looks at us this morning, if we've trusted in Jesus, he sees us. We've been presented in his sight as being holy. I have been, you have been, we've been made holy. And if we've trusted in Jesus, then when God looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. Instead, he's given you the holiness of Jesus. And you and I were filthy, dirty, rotten, disgusting sinners, the Bible says, hostile to God. And yet, through accepting this wonderful offer of God's mercy in Jesus, We're presented to God as being holy, clean. He's cleaned us up, made us into new people, made reconstructed from the ground up, holy and perfect. And Paul says that as God looks at us, what he sees us as being is without blemish. Write that down. He says, in other words, we are faultless and perfect. God sees us as being without blemish. You know, we were made in God's image. You were not an accident. You're not the product of billions of years of evolution from slime. God made you in his image. And yet the problem is the Bible says sin came into the world and it messed that up. And one of the ways the Bible describes us a little bit is is like skin covered in festering wounds, 
blemished, ruined, spoiled, destroyed. But through trusting in Jesus, God has removed our sin, and it's like skin completely made new, like baby skin, just without blemish, without any fault, without any perfection, just like Jesus. As God looks at me as he looks at you. If we've trusted in Jesus, God just sees perfection. He sees faultless, blameless, without any blemish. We still sin. God knows that we still sin, and God wants us to flee from sin. And if we're following Jesus, we will be doing all we can to, to flee from sin. He wants us to live by our new identity, holy, faultless, perfect, rather than our old identity. But God no longer chooses to see our sin, the Bible says, in terms of our eternal destiny, in terms of our relationship with him, and in terms of our being with him in heaven forever. And Paul says that we are not guilty. It's as if we've been to court and we have been declared not guilty. Can we have that up, please? He's been, he's, God has declared us as being not guilty. Just like being in a court case and we're bang to right, it's absolutely clear this person is guilty. And yet God comes along and says, because Jesus has taken the punishment for you, I will declare you not guilty. Free. Free to go. We stood accused of being sinners. We were guilty. We were deserving punishment. But through trusting in Jesus and through what he did on the cross, we get to be declared not guilty. Case dismissed. We can stand before God without guilt and without fear of his wrath. Isn't that amazing? That is phenomenal that we get to be declared not guilty. It's pretty amazing. Reconciled to God, made holy, made faultless, made perfect, declared not guilty when clearly we are. That is amazing good news. That is the gospel. It literally means good news. And that is phenomenal news. Amazing news. And that should just set us our hearts on fire, shouldn't it? But there's a problem. Because look at what Paul says in, in his very next breath. He says all these things. He said, if you've trusted in Jesus, this is now true of you. And then he goes on to say something. He says, if, if you continue in your faith, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature, to, to every creature or in all creation and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. If, if. Little word, but with huge, massive consequences. All these things, Paul says, are true of you if you continue in your faith. Established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So what is Paul saying? Is it possible to be reconciled, to be made holy, to be made faultless and perfect, to be declared not guilty, and then for all that to be taken away by something we do or something that someone else does? Is that possible? Is that what Paul's saying? Does Paul mean that it's possible to be born again, to be made a whole new from the, from the ground up, as it were, to be born again and then to be unborn again? Is it possible to be forgiven and then for God to withdraw that forgiveness because we do something too big to be forgiven? Is it possible to be given eternal life and then somehow that life not to be eternal again? Is it possible to be made holy forever and then to be made unholy because of something I do? Well, let me be as clear as I can be you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. These things cannot be lost once they've been given. If they've truly been given to you, it, they cannot be taken away. That would make a nonsense of those things and it would make a nonsense of the gospel. You can't be unborn again. You can't, you can't lose eternal life. You can't lose the holy standing that God has given to us. You can't be, suddenly have, be, be unforgiven. The Bible clearly teaches that you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot be saved today and then lost tomorrow because of something we perhaps do or something we no longer believe or, or, or something like that. And as a church, 
the folks who began this church many years ago thought that that was so important, and we as elders continue to think it's so important, that it's one of the lists, it's in the list of our statement of faith. It's one of the points in our statement of faith as a church here. It says this, the eternal security of all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior. So important, it's in our statement of faith. Why do we believe the Bible teaches that we cannot lose our salvation? Well, let's just look briefly at a few verses that clearly teach this. Jesus said in John 6, three, nine, uh, John 6, verse 39, speaking about those who have trusted in him, he says, I shall lose none of all of that he, God the Father that is, I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. That's pretty emphatic, isn't it? They're not going to fall away. They won't stop believing. Jesus will not lose any of them. If a person has truly trusted in Jesus, they will not be lost. Nobody will be, will be taken away. They cannot be lost from Jesus' hands. Jesus also says this in John 10, 28 to 30. I give them eternal life. See, it's not through something we've done. Jesus has given it. Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. See, it's God, it's Jesus who gives us eternal life. It's not something in, in our power to, to, to get in the first place or to lose. And no one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand, he says. If you've trusted in Jesus this morning, genuinely trusted in Jesus, then you are safe and you are secure in the grip of God's grace. Grace wouldn't be grace if somehow, at some point in the future, we could unlose our salvation, we, we could lose our salvation. It is grace. It's something that God gives to us. It's not by works. It's not what we do that gets us to heaven. It's by trusting in what Jesus has done. And if we've truly trusted in Jesus, then that can't be taken away from us. That would make a nonsense of the very concept. You are secure in the grip of God's grace. And nothing you can do or anybody else can do can remove you from God's grip. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, he says, Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. Once we believe, God marks us as belonging to him, and he does that by giving us his Holy Spirit. And Paul talks about it in this way. He said, it's like God stamps us with a mark of ownership. And you see that, a little picture of a customs seal. And when customs officers seize goods that belong to somebody else, they become the property of the government, and they stamp it with a seal. And that seal says nobody can, can tamper with that. Nobody can break that seal. That, those goods, that, that thing, whatever it might be, now belongs to the government. And Paul is saying, when you trust in Jesus, if you genuinely trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit will come into your life and he is like a stamp of ownership. We can't remove the Holy Spirit from our lives. He's there forever and we've got a stamp of ownership. We belong. And that guarantees our inheritance. He is a deposit, Paul says, that guarantees our inheritance. When you go into a car showroom, you put a deposit down. It's a down payment. And that guarantees that when you go back two or three days later, it is yours and you make the final payment. And using that kind of same kind of picture, Paul is teaching us that the Holy Spirit is like a deposit, a down payment, so that when Jesus comes, all those who've trusted in him will still have the Holy Spirit within them. And he is that down payment, that deposit, which guarantees that when Jesus comes, all those who've trusted in him will be taken to heaven with him. And so the Holy Spirit guarantees our future destiny. And he guarantees that when Jesus returns, we'll still be saved and secure, and he will then take us to be with him. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 4, verses 4 to 5. He says, you who through faith are shielded, not by what we do, but by God's power, 
until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We are shielded by God's power. If we've genuinely trusted in Jesus, we are shielded by God's power until we receive our complete salvation, being with God forever in the new heaven and new earth. It's not dependent on how good we are. That would be salvation by works. It's dependent on what we do. It's not dependent on what we do. It's dependent on what God has done. It's about his grace, God treating us in a way that we don't deserve rather than on, on our ability. Because we can never, no matter how good we are, we can never please God. We can never earn our way to heaven. It's all about trusting in Jesus because he is perfect and he has made it possible for us to go to heaven. And Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 1, 6 verse 7, he says, Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold may be proved genuine. When we go through trials in our lives, whether they're temptations or persecution or illness or doubts or health issues or difficult situations, these situations, Peter is saying, will show whether or not our faith is genuine because they will reveal what our faith really is. Is it real, is it genuine, or is it not? Peter says that these trials come so that our faith may be proved genuine. See, the person who is genuinely trusted in Jesus and has surrendered their life to God and has been born again, that person, Paul is saying, and Peter is saying, will persevere and he will endure through trials. If their faith is genuine, they will keep going. They will persevere to the end. They won't turn away from God. They won't abandon the faith. If a person has been truly born again, they might just survive by their fingertips. They might just be clinging on, but they will cling on. They will endure. They will persevere to the end. The person who has been born again, they are secure forever. And the trials that we go through will reveal whether or not a person's claim to being born again is genuine. Is it true? Because the outcome will be seen in their lives. See, it's possible for a person to come along to church or be brought up in church to say they've become a Christian. They may even really genuinely think they're a Christian. They may get baptized, may become a church member, get involved with church and serve in church, but it's possible for that to be a surface-level renewal of their life and not a total rebuild from the ground up. That is a possibility, and I know people of whom that's been true, sadly. I know one person I can think of who, who, who then became a Christian and realized that for, for many years of his life he had been living a lie without even realizing it. Just like an extreme makeover, a person may engage with God, they may start reading the Bible, and they may engage with the good news, they may make some changes, they may look a little different on the outside, but on the inside they've never really had that true transformation. Whereas the person who is truly born again is like the house in the extreme home makeover edition. The old person is demolished and a whole new person is created from the ground up. See, if a person is truly born again, if they are truly saved, then they will not fall away or turn away from God. They will persevere to the end. It's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Wayne Grudem it puts it like this, and it's going to be up on the screen for you. The perseverance of the saints means that all who are truly born again will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives. And that only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. And so Paul was saying in this section of his letter that the proof that somebody has been born again, has been reconciled, made holy, made faultless, and made perfect is whether or not they continue and persevere to the end. That's how we know if someone has been truly saved, truly born again. It's only true if they continue in the faith and in their faith and continue to believe the gospel. If we've been born again, we cannot lose our salvation. We will be those who continue in the faith. We may have struggles, we may be clinging on by our fingertips, but we will continue 
established and firm, says Paul, not moved from that hope in the gospel. The person who doesn't continue and who at some time in their life falls away or drifts away, either in their belief or their lifestyle, Paul is saying was never truly born again in the first place. Now we may have some people, you know, we all go through dips and, and we all go astray at times. Paul's not talking about that. Paul's talking about a, you know, a, a decisive break and turn away from following Jesus. So how can I know if a person is truly born again? Well, ultimately, only a God knows a person's heart and it's not for us to judge, is it? But perseverance to the end is how we know if someone else uh, was truly saved. But how about ourselves? What about us? How can we know? I've listed five things that are a helpful way of testing our own claim to be born again. It may be this morning that you've never been born again. Maybe this morning you've never trusted in Jesus. Well, I would encourage you and plead with you to find out more about Jesus. Surrender your life to him to give him that first place in your life, to trust in him. But maybe this morning you've been coming to church, you uh, believe you're a Christian, you maybe you're not quite sure, maybe you've been coming to church for many, many years, maybe you're a member of this church. How do I know for myself that I am born again? Well, firstly, number one, we will have a love for God. Is my life filled with a love for God? doesn't mean we're on 100% on fire and in love with God all the time, but is there a, an orientation of my life which is about loving God? Do I seek to live for God? I might not do it all the time, and I might, might not make a very good job of it, but am I seeking to do that? Do I love God? Number two, we will be living in an ongoing state of repentance and, ha- and have a hatred of sin. There's no forgiveness without repentance. Repentance is a change of mind and a change of direction. It's turning away from our sin and our sinful way of living, and it's seeking to live God's way instead of our way. But not only do we need to repent of our sinful state and of any known sins when we first trust in Jesus, but that needs to be an ongoing state of mind, an ongoing lifestyle of repentance. As soon as we're aware of sins in our life, to confess them, to, to repent of them, and once again turn to Jesus. Not for forgiveness. Once we, if, if we're born again, then we are forgiven, past, present, and future. But the heart that loves God will be living in this ongoing state of repentance and of a, a dislike and a hatred of sin. Number three, we'll have a hunger for and an acceptance of God's Word, the Bible. The true believer will want to read the Bible. They might not read it as much as they'd like to or as much as we should, but there will be a desire to read the Bible, to embrace what they read in it and seek to live according to what they've read. Number four, we will become more like Jesus. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. In other words, when we look at a person, is there proof, is is there outward evidence that they're becoming more like Jesus? And is that true of ourselves? We're never going to be completely like Jesus this side of heaven. But if we're trusting in him, if Jesus has made us new, then it is impossible for us to stay the same. We will begin to look a little bit more like Jesus in our lifestyle, in our actions, in our speech, and so on. Number five, we will be telling other people about Jesus. Followers of Jesus will want to do what they can to help other people become followers of Jesus. Now, we can expand on those and look at other things, but there are five helpful categories in which there should be some clear outcomes. If we've truly born again, these things should be seen in our lives. So here's a challenge for you this morning. Are you born again? It's possible to have been coming here for five years or 50 years, to be baptized, to be a member, but to never have been truly born again. That, that, that is it's a possibility. If I asked you to share your testimony this morning, you know, it's no good going back to what happened five years ago when you prayed a prayer in a meeting at some time or at the end of a Christianity Explored case, uh, course or, or 35 years ago. You should have an ongoing story of what God is doing now in your life. That is your testimony, not something that happened 35 years ago. So we need to write this down. We need to examine our lives to ensure we are truly born again. We need to examine my life. 
I need to be examining my life. Am I truly born again? Does my life show that? Is there proof? Is, is, is there fruit in my life? Am I continuing in the faith? Wouldn't it be tragic if we thought we were a Christian just because we'd said a prayer at a service or, or at some point in the past or because we were christened or baptized or, or because we'd Christian, uh, uh, Christian parents or we'd, we'd done a, an alpha course or something like that or because we'd always come to Regents and yet we'd never been truly born again. Can I encourage you and, ex- and this morning to examine your life and look at these five categories as these will help you answer that question. And if you haven't been born again, then you need to be. You need to surrender your life to God and genuinely trust in Him. But if you have done that, if you are continuing in the faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, and you've got the fruit, the, dem- the evidence of that, then rejoice. Praise God that He has saved you. Not because of your goodness, but because of His grace. Because He's treated you in a way we don't deserve. And praise God that you are safe and you are secure in the hand of Jesus. And that nothing you can do and that nothing anyone else can do can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. The band are going to come and lead us in a song uh, just now. And I'm going to pray as they come up to uh, ready themselves. And I'm going to pray. There's an opportunity for us to respond this morning as I pray. Let's just bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, the wonderful good news that Jesus has come. Love has come down. Help us to respond to that love that we can make it true for ourselves, that you have come down and rescued us. I pray for any this morning who don't know you, have not been born again, that they this morning will reach out and embrace you, Lord Jesus, and accept you into their life. Help each one of us this morning to examine our lives, to make sure that we are in the faith, established, not moved, and are going on with you. Help us to live and to bear fruit for Jesus in all that we do. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that our salvation is not dependent on us, that we are safe and we are secure in your hands, in the grip of your grace, for which we give you thanks. Amen.